I want to hear from you, our listeners. Please visit www.morganstanley.com backslash Carla podcast and take our latest survey and share your thoughts. We will be selecting one survey respondent to listen in on a future podcast recording, so don't miss out. It's not about stepping out of your comfort zone. It's about redefining your comfort yeah. zone. Yes. And redefining yes. with the data that convinces you that this is a good investment, and in some cases, a better investment. The statistics say with women-led organizations, they do better than the average organization does. So I'm, I'm telling people, forget this, stepping out of comfort zone, redefine your comfort zone. On this special episode of Access and Opportunity, in honor of Women's History Month, we want to welcome Edith Dorson, founder and managing director of the Women's Venture Capital Fund, and Reginald Van Lee, partner and chief transformation officer of the Carlisle Group. Edith co-founded the Women's VC Fund in 2011 to provide capital to women entrepreneurs seeking Series A and B funding. The first fund closed in late 2013, and the second fund, Women's VC Fund 2, launched in late 2017, building upon that initial pioneering success. Helping Edith reach that goal is Reggie, as he's fondly known, who sits on the Women's VC Fund 2's advisory board and is a key figure in the fight to close the race and gender gap in venture capital. In fact, Reggie recently co-wrote an article published in the Harvard Business Review about institutional investors' crucial role in the future of the venture landscape. In this episode, Edith and Reggie take us through the motivation and the challenges of establishing the fund, the inequities that women and people of color face across corporate America, and the new narrative they're creating through greater transparency and accountability. Come on and join me for the ride. So, Reggie and Edith, thank you so much for being here with me today, and it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. So, Edith, I'm going to start with you. Take us through your journey. You have a master's in public administration, an MBA, both from Harvard, and you spent some time in the Sudan before you were a banker. So let's walk through that, because I'm trying to get our listeners to understand how you got to the Women's VC Fund. Okay, well, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Ultimately, I moved out to the West Coast, surprising all family and friends. And I think being out on this coast, somehow the vistas looked bigger, different, and it gave me an opportunity to uh, to look beyond, if you would. And um, as we were headed into a business school reunion, we stumbled on the data that showed the positive of venture going to women entrepreneurs. And uh, so we brought together a roundtable of women and talk about kind of what was the problem and moreover, was there something we could do about it? And uh, despite the fact that it was a very rainy early Saturday morning, twice as many women showed up as we had invited. So we had struck a nerve. And from there, the key question was, was there enough of a deal flow, enough pipeline to do this? And uh, we went off and validated that, in fact, there was absolutely enough deal flow of venture-worthy women entrepreneurs and um, slowly began to fundraise and to um, form the, the first fund, Women's Venture Capital Fund. Outstanding. Okay, so Reggie, now I've known you for a long time. How did you get to the Women's Venture Fund? From my very beginning in corporate America, I recognized the disparities between those who were in the mix and those who were not. 
whether it's in a business context, healthcare, anywhere you look, you see these disparities. So I was dedicated to finding ways for me to help close that gap. Wherever I could close that disparity gap, I wanted to do it. So it either came to me both as a friend from Harvard and wanting to bring women to the forefront and other minorities to the forefront in this investment space, I said, sign me up. And so I signed up with Fund One. I'm in Fund Two as well and delighted to be a part of the Women's Venture Capital Fund. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, because so often, especially early stage entrepreneurs, let alone early stage investors, you know, are thinking to themselves, you know, what is my purpose? How can I make a difference? So can you talk a little bit about that aha moment and how you define that? Yes, it's it's interesting because my favorite quote is a Mark Twain quote, who said the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you understand why. And so I'm always in search of that second day. Why am I here? And what series of things that I do throughout my life so they would lead to this next thing, right? My purpose in life is to be that problem solver that is transformational in the things I do, to make something happen that perhaps wouldn't have happened without my involvement and my engagement and the skills I can bring to the table. So I'm always looking for that next thing that helps me to achieve my purpose in life. Well, I'll tell you, solving the inequity in the distribution of capital uh, to women and people of color is a big one. So I, I think the marketplace will be grateful that you have decided to to put your superpowers, as I like to call them, to this particular task. So let's get right in. I understand the driving mission, but let's talk about the challenge in raising the fund, because in 2011, there wasn't a whole lot of data. And what I like to say is that people who don't get the diversity conversation, they hug the data. So the fact that we did not have the data was a huge excuse for the marketplace, I would argue. So let's talk a little bit about the challenge, the argument uh, in raising Fund One. Without a doubt, it's, it was the hardest challenge that I encountered, you know, confronted in, in my professional life. We knew looking around from uh, observing that there were uh, there was a pipeline of women entrepreneurs, uh, and we were certainly starting to see a very significant pipeline at the seed or angel stage. But as you say, there was virtually no data that supported the value of diversity in senior leadership. So we met a tremendous amount of skepticism, both, you know, what was the value of diversity? Was this just a nice thing to do? Could women entrepreneurs really achieve the market rate returns that investors, all investors, and certainly ours were seeking? And was there enough of a pipeline? So I think we spent um, a lot of time those first couple of years validating that there really was a pipeline and that pipeline was growing. And we were able to, with lots of probably more anecdotes at that point than actual hard data, but to show that there were many venture, um, uh, venture-worthy women, uh, particularly our interest, Carla, from the start was not in pure startups. And I think this is, was a point of differentiation back all the way then continuing through the present. But rather, we were looking at um, companies that had been around for a couple of years, had raised a few million in in angel or seed capital, had developed their core technology or product, and importantly, were demonstrating market traction. And we we kind of referred to this as a risk-intelligent approach to venture capital. Um, And frankly, um, that ultimately, I think, resonated and won the day for us. As I observed the difficulty in women and minority firms to get money, not so much in the very initial stage, but in that next stage. People will easily buy into an idea 
because ideas can be gender blind and race blind. When they then go into the next stage, they're buying into a team and they look at the team. And if the team doesn't look like them, they have serious discomfort with it. So in the early stages, in the absence of data, we found a few enlightened people who could sort of step out of their comfort zone and take a chance with what we were doing here. Now we have the benefit of data that proves that this makes sense, the efficacy of these investments. But I also tell people, it's not about stepping out of your comfort zone. It's about redefining your comfort yeah. zone. Yes. And redefining yes. with the data that convinces you that this is a good investment. And in some cases, a better investment. The statistics say with women-led organizations, they do better than the average organization does. So I'm, I'm telling people, forget this stepping out of comfort zone, redefine your comfort zone. Yeah, so let me let me ask you this question, because so often VC funds could use the excuse that this is not what we do. And one of the things we found in our last white paper was that at least 20% of most VC funds are dedicated to something that we call expansion risk. So if you think back 10 years ago, that was investing in the cloud. That was investing in driverless cars. 20 years ago, that was, you know, SaaS, right? And and so you you dedicated a portion to learn about these things, to, to trial balloon these things. So, you know, why couldn't you put women and folks of color under this expansion risk umbrella uh, if you don't already know about it to, to try it? I would say the data suggests that not only does that expansion make sense, but that becomes core eventually. That which was so risky and so it's cutting edge becomes core. And woe on you if you don't get into that space sooner. So while some of this is perhaps doing the right thing, a lot of this is doing the right business in the right way. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. So let's talk about the, the commercial piece uh, to this. I'd like to ask you both, one of the things that you try to accomplish as an investor is to go where other people have not been. Everybody's trying to seek alpha and alpha means finding something that no one else has found yet. So, you know, how did how did your uh, potential investors think about this when you were saying, hey, you don't have anything else that looks like this. Why don't you give us a shot? Why don't you invest in, in the fund? Or what other argument did you try to use? Well, I think, again, um, they were very interested early on. And, you know, half of half of the folks we approached had experience with venture angel investing and the other half didn't. So we had to do a lot of market education, if you would. And ultimately, the venture business comes comes down to finding overlooked and undervalued opportunities and being among the first to get there. Uh, and I will say, you know, the fundraising period for the first fund went on longer than I'll ever admit. Well, that's that's another point, Edie. I'd like you to pause there and have you both comment on the fact because you started that in 2011 and closed in 2013. And that's a playbook point, in my view, for a couple of reasons. For people who want to go out and raise funds, realizing it's not just making a few phone calls and you're done in 90 or 180 days. Let's talk about that. How did you keep it alive? Because the other issue that you hear from people is, oh, you've been out there a while. I don't know if I want to write that check. So let's let's have our listeners, those who want to raise capital, understand that. And those who have capital to invest, what it looks like for somebody like you that takes that long. Yes. Well, um, it was initially painful, but it's a skill. I mean, I will tell you, Carla, like everything else, you get better at it. And having folks like Reggie and early investors who could speak for us, folks who knew us for some time or had come to know us more recently in our career, counted for a lot, counted for a lot. Uh, we also did find, particularly for newer investors, it was often good to meet them in small groups 
because sometimes they're not sure the questions quite to ask or they're more comfortable in a group setting. So that was something over time that uh, we evolved into doing that I think was quite successful. But the more that we could show them pipeline, the more that we could show that we could get into some terrific deals before sort of others. And one of our earlier earliest investments was a company called Envoys Pay, uh, a B2B payments uh, company. Uh, we were the first institutional investor and within five years, uh, I mean, they, they started to show real success. So that kind of getting those few first deals under our belt, explaining what our rationale was, showing the progress, um, you know, bit by bit, um, you climb up that very tall tree. It is a change management process, right? It's a notion of having your first wins and, and really communicating the wins, over-communicating with the investors, moving them through the process, hearing their concerns and addressing them. Don't try to address them monolithically, but you know, very laser-focused. So from the start, we dealt with our limited partners, investors, as if we were a $100 million fund. Um, so we really, I think, put in place the right governance and communication that um, made them feel very comfortable. And they, in turn, could speak to their friends and colleagues and bring them in as a result. Let me summarize a playbook then. So the first thing was obviously going to somebody that you already knew and had a relationship with and having that person be willing uh, as Reggie did, to leverage all of their various networks and make the right introductions for you as you're raising your first fund. The second is, if you're doing something that hasn't been done before, making sure, as I like to say, that you educate and sell at the same time. Because very few people have original thought, is what I like to say. So if they haven't seen it before, they don't even know what context to put it in. So being able to educate at the same time that you're selling. The third is if you can get data to support what you're doing that says it is a good investment thesis is another thing that that could be helpful. And as you said, uh, Reggie, not thinking about it as a small fund, but thinking about it as if you are a $100 million fund, to your point, Edie, and dealing with all of your investors as they have their own individual issues and over-communicate, over-communicate, and and market, market, market every win, market every win to kind of reinforce with those who have, quote, taken the risk that they have, in fact, made a very good risk because, as I like to say, it's nothing better than having your customers sell for you. Exactly. Well said. Well said. All right, so now let's fast forward to Fund 2, which was 2017. So how does Fund 2 differ from Fund 1? Look, I think there are a fair number of lessons learned. I mean, one of um, our advisors early on uh, said to me, uh, a woman out of the, who had been a successful VC said to me, no matter where you come from or what you've done before, there's a lot of OTJ, on-the-job learning here. And um that certainly turned out to be true. I mean, we, we, I think, have developed better processes to screen and evaluate. I mean, we see hundreds of deals each, each year. And uh, how do we make sure that we're spending our time and attention on those that are most promising? I think we also have honed our antennas in terms of both the management teams that we're investing in and the boards and um, institutional investors that we're investing alongside. So what do I mean by that? Look, um, most founders are very are visionary by, by their very nature. Uh, they're passionate, they're hardworking, and oftentimes even lovable. 
But um, the truth is that to be a successful founder and, and build a company of real size, you have to um, recruit, build, and retain a team around you um, and hire folks who are either smarter or certainly more experienced in, in areas and functions than, than you are. And um, one, of, one of the big, big misperceptions that Silicon Valley propagates is that successful companies, it's all about the CEO. It's not. No successful company is built on the back of the CEO alone. And so we really look at, can the CEO bring in the right people? What are the team dynamics within them? Because we also don't believe that you can switch out the CEO very readily. You know, we're ah. a very capital efficient venture capital funds. We don't have the luxury of time or money um, to be able to do that. Wow, that's a very different view, Edie, than conventional VC wisdom who think they can get a great idea and, and can boot the CEO. Yeah, and, and I will tell you, this is from hard experience. I mean, there were one or two times we sort of had to go along with it and uh, it didn't work out, Carla. It didn't work out. We've got to have the right team two or three people at the outset. Obviously, as these companies grow, they build a significantly larger management team. But important, I would also say, is while the CEO has to be dogged, they have to bring with them a certain humility to understand that they're gonna learn a hell of a lot about the market over the next few years, and they gotta be listening really hard to customers, competition, and, um, advisors who are giving them good advice. Um, hard to do because they're often getting thrown a lot of advice, but um, they got to recognize that, um, you know, on the one hand, they are steering this ship. They're the captain of the plane, but um, there's a lot they don't know. So that's pretty critical. And then I would just add one final point is we pay more attention, Carla, to looking at who we invest with. Um, not only do we want investors with deep pockets for obvious reasons, but we, um, we're generalists for the most part. So we look to co-invest uh, or to, to have board members that have very deep domain expertise and understand and have a real experience working with management teams at early stage companies. Yeah. And Reggie, lessons learned looking back. The Uber message for me is a notion of conventional wisdom and sort of your natural intuition doesn't always work here. We had to go through the fire and in our own way had to be humble and to learn the lessons and to be able to pivot and to see what we gathered from that. So I would argue that one has to go through the fire uh, with that sort of mindset uh, and not just think that you're gonna lean on everything you knew before and think it holds to the end point. The other thing is, you know, we find that to these institutional investors, the message is, you need to ask the question and track the numbers. Ask the question to where you're investing, what is the penetration of senior women and people of color in the leadership? And ask the question of, let's monitor the diverse leadership going forward. And just by asking the question, sometimes people behave differently. Things happen. Yes. You didn't insist yes. on it. You didn't set quotas. You didn't push anything. You just asked the question. So if you ask the intelligent question, I think that's important. The other point I talked about before is this redefining your comfort zone and to lean on this data that is coming out day in, day out about the, the efficacy of these investments. And for those who are doing great things, I would say that's necessary, but not sufficient. Whatever you're doing now, you need to do more of because this is a big problem 
and it needs a lot of attention. And the more you do, the more benefits you'll get out of it. Yeah, and that gets me to the white paper. You you went right to some of the recommendations, Reggie, which I was just about to talk about. Uh, you and Eileen Lang authored this paper that was in the Harvard Business Review just a few months ago. And I thought you did an uh, awesome job in calling out institutional investors. And you just walked everybody through, you know, the the recommendations that you made. Uh, but what's been the feedback that you've gotten from some institutional investors and how have they responded to this? There's been some feedback, but not enough. Not enough, Carla. What gets measured gets done. What doesn't get measured doesn't get done. And so we think there's quite a ways to go for institutions to realize they've got influence here that they're simply not exercising. 80 to 90% of the venture capital business, the capital that underlies the business in the United States comes from large institutions comes from pension funds, it comes from family offices on the other end of the spectrum, college endowments, other foundations. And for the most part, there's a good deal of, yes, we like this diversity and inclusion and we think it's important, but there hasn't been much movement. So they get it intellectually, but they can't quite put the level of energy into it that it deserves that they should. And that's why I say what they've done is necessary but not sufficient. And I don't care what you've done, do more. Yes. What do you think about the argument that if your goal as an LP is to generate the highest amount of returns for your constituents, you're actually leaving money on the table? Exactly. Absolutely. And I'm surprised that that argument is not resonating even more. A lot of this money gets allocated uh, almost automatically, right? You know, the fund gets ah. established and uh, three or four years later, the firm raises another fund and assuming... Uh, it meets basic performance criteria. The institution sort of signs on to the second and third and fourth fund. The truth is there's a lot of faith in here because it takes 8, 10, 12 years for a venture fund for the returns to be realized. Reggie, do you want to talk about the climate action as a precedent here for institutional investors? Yes, that's a good example that you used in your, in your paper to say how fast these CEOs got behind that. Yeah. If you can make it a cause celeb, as they did in that space, and you get the right senior people, important people, to sign on to it. And if you hold them accountable through monitoring and having to meet SDG goals, et cetera, you find that you can make real effort here. So our, our view has been we have to keep plowing at it. We have to keep building the advocates. The more senior advocates, the better, and we will get there. And the more enlightened people get it, uh, but even they will say, uh, in retrospect, they just had to go for it, but they weren't quite sure and they were taking a risk and that sort of stuff. But to your early point, Carla, I think that which is an expansion approach will become core. Otherwise, yeah. you're leaving money on the table. So let me ask you, what words of encouragement do you have for underserved founders who are trying to secure financing, Reggie? Because you you are tapped a lot as an institutional investor as a part of this fund, but you're also tapped as an individual investor. So what do you say to our community of entrepreneurs who are listening about what they might do to access some of this capital? The first thing is don't give up. And, and many times, like it or not, investors are testing you. And they want to see, are you really dedicated to this or not? And they will put obstacles in front of you almost purposely. And when you then back off or blink or get weak, they say, ah, see, 
they weren't really for it, right? So to the winner goes the spoils. I mean, I think they, my encouragement is if you are really behind this, you didn't get where you got by believing the hype, by believing the haters, by letting them discourage you. So that which got you here, keep pushing. Don't give up. You have to keep pushing. Because when you give up, you've proven them right. And, and as you know, in my life, Carla, my whole goal in life is to prove the naysayers wrong. Yep. I, I could not agree more. I call it negative motivation, and I'm certainly a disciple of that gospel for sure. Well, let me just turn my attention before we get towards the end towards not having enough people at the table, because that was something else that you commented on in your article was that was a recommendation. Get more diverse partners at the table in order to, you know, change the game, if you will. And so what recommendations would each of you have to large institutional investors, either at the LP level or asset allocators, because our, our survey found that only 59% of the VCs believe that investing in diverse entrepreneurs is a priority. So if they don't think that investing in diverse entrepreneurs is a priority, then you can imagine how they feel about actually having diverse partners at the table. So what would you say to that? The words that my colleagues don't like me using oftentimes is you need to suspend your disbelief, plain and simple. You need to suspend your disbelief. Because there are all these things that would tell you, oh, I shouldn't do this. Oh, this is risky. That's BS. And this notion of I can't find a pipeline, I can't find people, they aren't out there. They're not in your network. Expand your networks. Right. There are other networks right. out there. And those networks want to be engaged with. So suspend your disbelief. I believe Reggie is truly unique in the world. But I also do believe, and we've had this conversation, that there are Reggie Van Lee Juniors. Um, across all sorts of financial service firms and law firms and consulting firms, but you gotta, you gotta reach out, reach out for them. And, you know, the analogy I draw is until two weeks ago, gee whiz, you know, who would have thought we would have had a secretary of defense, a treasury secretary, a director of intelligence and a homeland security cabinet member all coming from groups that until now have been totally underrepresented. So there's a huge, cadre of talent out there, but, um, you know, you got to go look for it uh, and extend your networks for sure. So let me ask you guys a question that's a real playbook point. Neither of you were born institutional investors. So if you had to say to the top VC funds, I'm going to give you four bullet points or three bullet points of a profile of a person who could be successful in your space as you guys have been as VC investors, you know, what three things would you tell them to look for, Reggie? What three things would you tell them to look for, Edie, so they can no longer use the excuse, I can't find any? Hungry, you know, uh, ceaselessly. I mean, I think the most important thing is for those of, I mean, committed to the end goal and what you don't know, you figure out, you learn. You ask a lot of questions and, um, you know, an inherent curiosity and commitment to the end goal is how I would sort of sum it up. There are a couple of three things I would say, and you've touched upon them as well, Edith. The first is you want people who are not only smart, but who are intellectually curious. They're going to really do the homework, burn the midnight oil, whatever it is to really drive to the right solution. Second is you want a person with enough initiative and drive and stamina and stick to itness and doggedness and all of that sort of stuff to go through the tough times and really drive to this thing in the right sort of way. And then this is going to sound trite or I don't know, but this whole notion of core values. 
I think the core values are so important. And in this country, we have this challenge around core values, and, and we have this problem in business as well. And the successful businesses will be the ones around which the founders and the senior team have a set of core values that are consistent with your investment thesis. Those are the three things I think is important. Outstanding. And so, Edie, what's next for the Women's VC Fund? Well, you know, um, we think we're just getting started. <laughs> so um, uh, our goal is uh, continue to work very closely with our portfolio companies, um, the management teams and boards to demonstrate more and more success because the more successful examples will be inspiring to entrepreneurs and it will also be get more capital. But we also see our role candidly in um, uh, augmenting the ecosystem for women entrepreneurs. And we did a fabulous, several fabulous events um, over the last couple of years, uh, showcasing the most successful women entrepreneurs in Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland. So post-COVID, we want to do more of that because we think it's real value add. And we were told it's the, um, the, the lessons and information imparted there was not, entrepreneurs were not getting in other venues. Uh, but, you know, we would like to very much be part of helping to amass um, some more institutional capital for women and uh, underrepresented minorities. Um, this is absolutely the time to do it. And that means the uh, CEOs, uh, the chief investment officers, the board members and trustees of these institutions, if they care about diversity and inclusion, um, they need to, to act. They need to act. And I would go further to say if they care about their businesses performing and not leaving money on the table, they need to get serious about diversity yeah. and inclusion. Cannot agree more. Okay. We have a tradition on access and opportunity called the lightning round. And so it's a fun way for our listeners to get to know you as an individual. Although I think we've had a great conversation here. Are you guys ready? First one, Twitter or Instagram? Edie. Instagram. Instagram. Okay. What's your personal mantra? Edie. Let's do it. Be courageous. Favorite piece of work, film, artwork, book, etc. Edie. Oh, geez, that's tough. Um, well, one of the most fabulous books I've read in the last sort of during the pandemic was Sapiens, um, which is an awesome <laughs> review of the history of man. Okay. A good friend of mine, Susan Thales Hill, wrote a book called Always Wear Joy. Yes. Always wear joys, which which combines my love for fashion and my general feeling about let's enjoy life. Amen. All right. Edie, city or countryside? Oh, geez. Um, countryside. Reggie. Yes. City or country. <laughs> city or countryside. <laughs> I want to say yes, both, but I have to say city. Okay. Edie, winter or summer? Oh, definitely summer. Oh, summer. Okay. Coffee or tea, Edie? Oh, French press coffee. South African tea. All right. You'll love this one. If you had a talk show, Edie, who would you want to be your first guest? Oh, that's pretty easy these days. Kamala. Okay. All righty, Reggie. Carla Harris. <laughs> I'll take that one all day. Okay. <laughs> all righty. One word to describe your legacy, Edie. Impactful. Okay. Reggie. Courageous. All right. Well, Aidy and Reggie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No question, our listeners are going to learn a lot from you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so Carla. much. Thank you, Carla. Pleasure. 
thank you all for joining us on this episode of Access and Opportunity. Be sure to stay tuned this season as we speak to more influencers in the sports, media, and entertainment fields who've committed to reframing the narrative for women and people of color. You won't want to miss it. What did you learn today from Edith Dorson and Reggie Van Lee? Send us your thoughts at carlapod at morganstanley.com. We would love to hear from you. Subscribe to Access an Opportunity on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for coming along.